Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 11th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The 46th President of the United States of America returns to his ancestral home of Ireland this evening. In his four-day visit to this country, Joe Biden will spend some time here in County Louth. The President will also visit Dublin and Ballinan County Mayo. Our political correspondent is Sean Defoe who joins us now. Morning, Sean. It all kicks off uh, this evening, of course, when President Biden arrives in Belfast. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I'm here in Belfast uh, this morning. It's over a very sunny morning in the middle of the city. And tonight is when the four-day programme, really one of the longer trips when it comes to a US president, is going to begin. He's going to arrive this evening on Air Force One, going to be greeted by the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. No formal engagements this evening, really, just arriving in. And then only one real, uh, you know, formal engagement, I suppose, tomorrow as well. Tomorrow morning, he's going to give an address at Ulster University. And around that event, he's going to meet with the Northern Ireland parties as well and have a bilateral meeting with Rishi Sunak, with the, the, the British Prime Minister. Obviously, it had been hoped and sort of maybe expected and indeed planned at the start that this would be a longer programme in Northern Ireland, but that's been somewhat cut short mm. by the fact that there is no operating assembly. It has been the intention of the President, as far as I can ascertain, uh, to visit Stormont and maybe to give his address there to a sitting in the House in the same way he's going to give an address to a sitting at the Oireachtas later on in the week, but it was ultimately decided that you know it wouldn't be proper to address uh, an assembly that wasn't sitting. And I suppose there were two minds that went into that, one that said, well, you know, obviously, look at the assembly is sitting, everything's devolved, maybe don't, uh, or, or is not up and running, maybe don't cause attention to that. And then there was another track of thinking that, well, if you've got everybody back into the room and they more than likely would all come for the photo op at the very least, mm-hmm. and maybe that would be the barking they need to, to get on and move on with this. But that's not the way the president has decided to go and said we'll meet with the party separately. Yeah, and when, when you consider that the cornerstone of uh, the Good Friday Agreement is power sharing uh, and there is no assembly or uh, executive, it, it undermines uh, the celebrations of uh, the 25th anniversary of uh, the agreement to some extent. Uh, what would you expect the Prime Minister to be saying to the leaders of the five political parties when he meets with them? Yeah, it does, because it was that big tenant, you know, and and it really is one of the, the great shames of Good Friday, I suppose, that the Assembly and the Executive have been non-functional almost as long or, or perhaps longer than they've been functional over the last 25 years. It's one of those bits that just hasn't quite got there yet uh, for the deal, one of the unfulfilled potential, I suppose, that you hear some of the architects of it talking about. I think Rishi Sunak over the weekend was talking about the, the need for the executive to return for the Windsor agreement to be backed and for them to get there. And I think Joe Biden is probably going to deliver a similar message. Certainly Rishi Sunak is going to hope 
that he delivers a similar message. Is that going to change the mind of the DUP overnight? Is Jeffrey Donaldson suddenly going to meet him and go, "Oh God, I see the light. I, I'm actually going to going to back this." I don't think so, um, especially given you know Jeffrey Donaldson mm. was one of the people to walk out of the of the Good Friday Agreement at the very last minute, even when Bill Clinton at the time was was putting the pressure on to get it done. So I think there is a hope that maybe it could be a catalyst to say, "Look, we're 25 years here. Look at everything that's changed." Ulster University is visiting in a part of the city that you know some parts of it were a no-go area for years. Now there's a university with 15,000 students there and a new campus that he's going to be opening. So I think that would be the message. We have made this much progress. Let's make more. Right. And uh, there is some surprise, uh, as you say, that the agenda in Northern Ireland is so short and it really will come down to that one single address. And some speculation as well uh, that that might be as a result of uh, the security threat, uh, which is now at a very significant level in Northern Ireland and we saw scenes of violence on the streets of Derry as dissident Republicans held a march yesterday. Yeah, you, you do wonder that play into it. The, the terror threat was raised by MI5 last month and been dropped last year, which is something that the Justice Minister Simon Harris described as a particularly unfortunate event. That was probably taken into the calculation, certainly. And of course, the PSNI we're on high alert anyway for the threat of potential distant activity over this weekend, given the particular anniversary that it marked. And that would have been the case regardless of whether or not Joe Biden was coming, but was potentially ramped up. Now, the, uh, John Kirby, he's the, the National Security Council of the U.S., the coordinator for them, he told a briefing at the White House yesterday uh, that the president wasn't overly concerned about the security situations, that he didn't get into individual security matters, but that it's not something that is uh, particularly fussing Joe Biden, if you like to put it that way. Um, but you do wonder behind the scenes, they'd, they'd never tell us, of course, yeah. they mm. also play into the, the, thing, the thinking somewhat. Absolutely. But there is, just yep. to say, there is, a, like, regardless of that, there is an absolutely massive security operation. I of mean, course. there are going to be hundreds of Secret Service agents through Ireland and Northern Ireland, the, uh, hundreds of PSNI officers uh, yeah. deployed today and tomorrow, and indeed police force uh, drafted in from, the, from mainland UK as well. Mm, speaking into the colours, uh, sealing up sewers, uh, snipers on rooftops, uh, quite possibly when uh, the President uh, appears uh, in public, uh, in open settings uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but when we talk about the President coming to Ireland, it's not just Mr Biden who's arriving here. There's all of uh, those security personnel Indeed, a huge media troop will uh, arrive alongside uh, the president. And there's a huge entourage on their way. Hundreds, literally hundreds of people. The figure I had heard was in the in the region of 800 people as an entourage mm. um, between different security service agents, between media advisors, hangers-on, everyone else. And it's funny, you know, you kind of have the image of Air Force One coming in on its own, but I remember from covering... Donald Trump down in Shannon a few years ago. It's never just one plane. Like, there is an Air Force Two and an Air Force Three. There's a fleet of Air Forces. It's only designated Air Force mm. One if the, if the president's actually uh, aboard. But there will be more than you know, more than one flying over with him. Indeed, there has been aircraft flying over over the last few weeks to deliver the helicopters that he's going to travel in to deliver the Beast, the big uh, car that's kind of somewhat of a cross between a tank and a James Bond car that he uses okay. uh, to get around. Yeah. Like it, it's, oh, some of the stuff it can do is, is remarkable. Yeah. Electroshocking shocking the handles. There's a fridge full of blood of the same type of the president in it. Like It really is security yeah. dialed up to the nines I, compared I, to what we're... I, I think that makes it all the easier to understand why the American journalists uh, were asking the white 
House press secretary last week, how many people are going, how much is going to cost, who's going to pay for it, and all the sort of questions, uh, I suppose, uh, that you'd be used to with uh, politicians spending an awful lot of money. This is going to be very expensive, uh, not just for the Americans, but for the Irish as well, in terms of providing security, I take it. Yeah, well, I put it to the overarching last week, towards the end of last week, how much is all this going to cost? And he said he didn't know, he didn't have a figure. Obviously, the main cost will be around security because you have, you know, Garda leave and uh, cancels this week to, to look after it. Garda overtime is going to be driven up to the nines as well as the, the expense of actually hosting the, the US president, which is not insignificant. I think they have paid this in around £7 million for Northern Ireland. And that's just, you know, <laughs> okay. that's less than a 20, wow. that's less than a 24-hour operation. So, you My know, God. do the multiples and even and the, the conversion rates yeah. are talking somewhere in the 20s of millions, I, I, I would expect, but we, we won't know that final figure until it's over. All right. Uh, well, uh, before it's over, uh, as you say, the president comes south of uh, the border. Will he be driving to Carlingford and Carlingford Castle? Or, or what's the plan in that sense? Yeah, we don't know exactly. Obviously, they don't tell us uh, exactly what way he's going to go. My understanding is he's going to be flying tomorrow afternoon, early afternoon, evening uh, to to Dublin on Air Force One, and then from Dublin helicoptering to Loud. Uh, and whether you know whether he goes to Carlingford Castle first, he's definitely confirmed he's going to do a tour of Carlingford Castle, but then also uh, is going to do some part of it in Dundalk as well. Probably, or possibly going to do a walkabout in Dundalk, you know, meet some people, go to a few, I'm sure, very carefully selected uh, shops and businesses around the place. They are, are all quite heavily screened. Mm. Um, so probably helicoptering to then and then going around the town. Of course, there will be, no doubt, there's going to be closures in and around uh, both mm. areas for people who are travelling to on Wednesday evening as well. So just to be aware of that. But that is going to be a big portion of his trip on Wednesday. Indeed, pretty much all his formal engagements with the public uh, on Wednesday are going to be in Loud and then moving mm. on. Dublin Mayo Thursday, Friday. Yeah, it's very exciting. I, I think uh, there'll be a lot of excitement around the place. And the Gardaí will be in with us a little bit later on this morning and probably will uh, outline uh, the traffic arrangements and so on. Uh, but uh, Mr. Biden will uh, address uh, the Oireachtas, a joint meeting of uh, the Oireachtas. He'll be the fourth American uh, president to have done so. Uh, and I'm sure the focus there will be on the Good Friday Agreement, will it? Yeah, I think so. I think Good Friday Agreement is going to be a big focus of it, but obviously also connections. You know, like Ireland, uh, there's, there's some remarkable connections about the amount of trade that Ireland does into the US and the US does uh, into Ireland. I think it's something like, I remember off the top of my head, something like Ireland is the 12th biggest exporter into the US at the minute of goods and services when you take into account financial transactions and, and, and everything else, which is absolutely remarkable for a country of our size. So those connections have sort of built up throughout the years. And it's thing interesting, some Northern Irish commentators over the last couple of days, just comparing the economies of Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and where things have gone over the last 25 years, you can really see the Irish economy having bloomed and boomed, of course, busted in the middle, but overall uh, boomed in that time, whereas Northern Ireland potentially stagnating a little bit more, possibly because of the government position where, where Stormont has, has fallen aside so often. So he's going to talk about that. Of mm. course, look, there is going. We can nearly do out a bingo card here of the, you know, the cousins who's going to mention of the, you know, the <laughs> yeah. Lewis and the Finnegans and mm. the Carnies and yeah. everybody yeah. else that, yeah. is, that he's going to talk about as well. Because he is uh, hugely proud. Uh, our, other than JFK, the most Irish of Irish mm. American presidents. All I'm right. Hugely proud of that. No uh, doubt you'll, you'll hear plenty. Uh, uh, and I hope, uh, or uh, Miss, uh, President Biden will be hoping uh, that that message will be heard by Irish Americans. Uh, there is some talk uh, that this is a, an election campaign event for Joe Biden going into the next presidentials. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I thought that Irish-American guaranteed support for the Democrats sort of swerved away over the last 20 years. It isn't as clearly strong as it used to be, potentially not as strong, you know, a vote-getter with the way the demographics have been changing in America. But it is still a a big vote. I mean, there's Mm. a huge amount of, I think, one in 10 Americans can trace Irish lineage is the stuff that the White House was putting out a couple of days ago. So there is a huge vote there. And it is going to get start to get towards that time. I think it was May before the election year when Trump declared last time that he was running again. That tends to be the month that if you're an incumbent president, you actually declare whether you're running again. A lot of people looking at Biden and going, God, doesn't have it in him. He is 80 years old. You know, mm. you wonder are his best days behind him when it comes to being a real campaigning uh, politician, but by all accounts, he does seem like he's going to run again. So yeah, look, it could be, uh, maybe it's his final chance to get in a trip like this that he really wanted to do and has said he wanted to do four years before now getting into that, what is essentially an 18-month campaign in the US. So Sean, when President Biden uh, addresses uh, the Oireachtas, am I right in thinking uh, that after he speaks, the government party leaders will respond and all political leaders will have something to say to the president? And is it expected that there will be a lot of criticism of American foreign policy? No, this is unusual, right? So usually, yes, for the other leader. You had it with Zelensky. Now, Zelensky didn't stay on the line, understandably. He was in a war zone at the time while all those speeches went on. But with the likes of Ursula von der Leyen or other leaders who have addressed the Rockets recently, that is the usual protocol. It's not happening this time. It's going to be Joe Biden comes in, he delivers a speech, and then he's gone and not even the Taoiseach is going to get uh, the chance to respond, which is unusual and perhaps is, uh, you know, brought on by the fact that they expected people before profit in particular, but also some of the independent CDs would level an awful lot of criticism of Joe Biden over, you know, the U.S. Mm. use of Shannon, over NATO activities. They were very vocally critical of NATO uh, in NATO's leading up to the war in Russia, if you get mm. me, that putting mm. the pressure potentially on the Russians that may have been a factor in the, in the invasion of, of Ukraine. And I suppose they uh, wanted to avoid all of that very unseemly commentary towards the president uh, right. uh, but yeah very unusual that this would be the format yeah okay interesting uh, and uh, it'll be interesting as well in terms of uh, security because no guns are allowed in the doll chamber so the bodyguards will have to stand outside uh, i'm sure after president biden delivers his uh, address uh, to the rockless members he'll be bundled away and taken off to mayo where he's going to give a public address isn't it uh, yeah, so the, the, there's going to be an awful lot of security around that house. There's an awful lot of secret service agents in around last year, last week. A lot of, a lot of American accents, new cameras going in. And even people, you know, like myself who have uh, accreditation to be on the campus aren't allowed on the campus unless we've been pre-vetted by security. So there's much, much extra measures. He's actually not going to May until Friday. Oh. So uh, the Thursday, there's going to be the address to the Oireachtas. And after that, he's going to attend a state dinner in Dublin Castle that evening, probably give further remarks. And that's when we'll probably hear from the likes of the Taoiseach. And then moving on on, on on Friday is when he's going to travel to Mayo. He's going to visit the, the Shrine of Our Lady in Knock, also reportedly going to visit a uh, hospice, which he opened or turned the sod on when he was vice president, when he was here in 2016, I think it was, um, and is now going to go back and visit that. And then, yes, this big public rally, his college green moment, 
for want of a better phrase of putting it, in Ballina Friday night. There's going to be uh, quite a hoolie, from what I understand. Mm, uh, sure. Potentially the, mm. the chieftains playing, there's going to be a whole programme of music and acts and support, and then leading up to the speech itself, and then a possible walk around by Joe Biden after that into the into the crowds and in around the town. There are public tickets available. If you go online, if you look yeah. at the White House, the, the American Embassy have been sharing this. You have to go through a forum and apply to get the tickets, but you can... Uh, can do it and be there with the rest of us on Friday night mm. for uh, for one hell of a party now. Uh, well, it sounds as though it will be the place to be. Uh, what about you, Sean? Are you going to get to speak to the president or get to put any questions to him? Uh, I somehow doubt it. Certainly oh. doesn't look as though there's been uh, there's been made time for any sort of a press conference, which will be a little bit unusual, particularly when there's a bilateral with the T-shirt. You know, usually when there is a visiting, um, a visiting leader, they do some sort of statement or some sort of press conference that isn't on the agenda at the moment. Um, and Joe Biden, certainly just even from going to the White House last week, there was not, or last month rather, there wasn't a huge amount of press access either at the opportunities when you would usually get to, you know, shout a question, mm. knob a question in, they were all shut down quite quickly. So it doesn't seem to be something that he does, take uh, questions from the, the great unwashed such as myself, you know, um, <laughs> but we, we live in joyful hope that at some point I may get to shout something at the president. Okay, well, we look forward to your report, Sean, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us at the beginning of this very historic week. Thanks a million. That's our political par- correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. As Shana explained, uh, President Biden will address a joint meeting of uh, the Oireachtas on a Thursday of uh, this week. And when he finishes speaking, he will leave Leinster House. Uh, there won't be an opportunity for the government to respond, let alone the chance for opposition politicians to criticise American foreign policy. Let's uh, speak uh, to an American native uh, who is very critical of American foreign policy and has been for many years. Glenda Camino, writer, editor, US citizen and member of the Irish Anti-War Movement's Steering Committee. Good morning to you, Glenda, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Will you be welcoming Joe Biden to Ireland? Well, let me put it like this. As an American citizen, I voted for Joe Biden because I thought he would at least be better than Trump and the alternative, which leads to fascism. But I've been very disappointed. I've been so disappointed that tomorrow I will be at an anti-war demonstration at 5 o'clock outside the GPO, which is saying no to U.S. imperialism, support Irish neutrality, and justice for Palestine. Why does a Palestinian child's life count less than a Ukrainian child's life? So I'm actually quite annoyed at the fact that he made a number of promises which made me choose to vote for him, Mm. and he's let me down on everything. He hasn't been fighting climate change. He's approved um, a willow project, which is the biggest oil project on public land ever in Alaska. And this project will be destroying the environment. Why did I vote for him? He promised to reduce emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030. Is that going to happen now? And then there's the war. And then there's the whole danger of the power plant in um, in Vaporizia. Like We're like, as the head of the of the uh, atomic energy agency says like we're throwing the dice every day Mm. what i see is complacency silence about many evils in the world and some duplicity the country which i hate to say because i love america and i love americans but i hate to say that um we have been the cause of many many wars equally bad and worse even than ukraine it's quite it's quite probable uh certainly is 
possible that uh, the same candidates uh, will be uh, on the list next time you go to vote for a president. Uh, if you are that disappointed with how Biden has uh, performed, would you be voting for the other fellow? <laughs> which other fellow? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know which it will be. Like I, I, I already you, have I, a bone to pick with um, with DeSantis, the other Republican crazy guy. Okay. Because he's been trying to take over the college I went to in Florida and turn it into like a conservative fundamentalist Christian project. Okay. Well, they're very disturbing to see this fascist move going on. All right. And trying to like eliminate things like critical race theory and any talk about slavery or reparation, mm. any talk about Black Lives Movement, they're trying to exclude this from mm. from the whole. Um, and when you say they, that's the when you say they. Not against it. I don't think so. Okay, so when you say that's they, that's the Republicans. Uh, I, I take yes. it you wouldn't vote for any Republican, but I, I was uh, talking about the no. probability or possibility of Donald Trump running. Oh, Donald Trump, I hope Donald Trump will be in prison. But the thing is, the crimes that they're putting up as, you know, the big mm. thing to have him that he did, has nothing to do with all the crimes that have been going on, like all the, the drone bombings of, you know, all the, you know, the, the rush, the, the mm. thing that he did with Iran, where he killed a prominent Iranian um, politician and, and military man. And if that had happened in the U.S., there would have been like war. It was the Iranians, strangely enough, who were actually you know, positive enough not to like proceed with a massive kind of, you know, revolt and and uh, attack on the U.S. because of what they did. Mm. It'd be equivalent to killing a, a, a very big U.S. general. No, well, what about Joe Biden's abandonment of Afghanistan? Well, that went very badly, didn't it? That was terrible. It was very badly and co- planned. And, co- and continues to be very bad uh, for Afghanis, particularly females. Yes, their situation is atrocious. There's so many atrocious things going on in the world. It's hard to know which is the worst. But I know that the most important issue we have to deal with, if we're going to survive even the next 10 years, um, we've been told by scientific authorities we have 10 years to avoid catastrophic change. And what wars are one of the biggest causes of, of climate mm. destruction. Um, and you, 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 asked, you, you asked about the importance of Palestinians. Uh, I think... Uh, Perhaps the answer to your question is uh, that they're not as important as uh, they might be if America didn't give the support that it does give to Israel. That's very true. The amount of financial support that goes to Israel enables the crime minister, as some of the Israelis themselves call him, mm. enables him to like bring on like really, really you know, right-wing politicians and people who say that you should um, smile when you kill Palestinians, try to enjoy it. One of their people they want to put in charge is actually quoted as having said that. Um, the injustice to Palestinians is overwhelming, but there's a great deal of injustice in this world. There's children starving every day. There's, there's people being pushed off their lands because of climate change. And um, the attitude toward refugees is keep them out. They don't seem to want to recognize that we really need to take care of everybody on this planet. Mm. Probably would be less refugees in the world if it wasn't for American foreign policy. I'm afraid that's true. I haven't been a big fan of American foreign policy since they, you know, since they first came to the United States. And I say they, like I have ancestors who came over and founded colonies. So I, I don't think any of us are fully innocent in this. But we have to do what we can. I, at the moment, am taking a World Against War course on war and the environment. 
which is tremendously important. It's, they start with the, the mining system and how all these sort of precious and rare minerals elements are being dug up under terrible conditions for workers and some child workers. And then those elements go into factories that make weapons, and those weapons go to arms fairs and they go to countries. I'm very much against trying to solve what's going on in Ukraine by war. That's never really solved anything. They're going to eventually have to negotiate. So we in the anti-war movement want to work every way we can toward negotiations, towards some kind of conclusion to this, because mm. no one is really going to win this. And more Ukrainians are going to die as long as this goes on. So and Russia, if, of course, if, is if to blame could, for the invasion. But could, the U.S. is to blame for all of the many, many times that they have interfered in political processes in other countries. Okay. If you could deliver one message uh, to President Joe Biden, uh, your president, uh, if you like, um, what would that be? I'd say, Joe, I think you're a nice guy. I'd like you to be a little more strong in what you're doing. I'd like you to go back to your campaign promises that I voted for you to do. I'd like you to change the, uh, the brutal policies toward asylum seekers on the border. I'd like you to they say no to projects that are going to increase the amount of coal and methane going into the air. I'd like you to show that you really are recognizing the importance of climate change. Hmm. Okay, a lot so, in that one message. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I think you started by saying my message. Yeah. Millions of people mm. in America have been saying this. Millions. Mm. Okay, all right. Uh, to do what was promised at election time. There's uh, a turn of phrase uh, that we're all too far too used to. Glenda, I leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. That's uh, Glenda Camino, writer, editor, U.S. citizen, and a member of uh, the Irish Anti-War Movement's steering committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yes, the most powerful man in the world is on his way to Ireland. Uh, the President of the United States will arrive in Belfast this evening. He'll be in his ancestral home of County Louth on Wednesday in Dublin, addressing the Oireachtas on Thursday, and off to Ballina for, I don't know, is it the in-laws? There's some connection there <laughs> that uh, the President has uh, apparently with people in County Mayo as well, but let's look at what's happening locally with local Fine Gael TD Fergus O'Dowd, who is also the chairperson of the Oireachtas Committee for the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Fergus O'Dowd, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, obviously, the President is here to celebrate uh, the 25th anniversary of uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement, uh, so I- I'm not sure if you'll have the opportunity to meet or speak with the President, uh, but what would you be saying to the President uh, about uh, the current political impasse? Well, I think that the Americans are sparing no effort to get the DUP uh, to agree to go back into the executive, nor is the Irish or the British government. We're all at the same point that the Good Friday Agreement has brought peace to the country, but it, it hasn't brought uh, it hasn't brought you know, a united working parliament with both sides working together. It's one thing when the fighting has stopped and the killing has stopped, but it, we have to work together, all sides, for the betterment of, first of all, Northern Ireland, then mm. the whole island, and obviously British and Irish future relationships as well, and indeed America. So there's a lot at stake here, and I think that it's really important that the president is coming here. Um, I would hope to meet him. I'm not sure about the loud. I don't have the details of the loud visit yet. 
But I know I've been the rock this, I hope to meet him there. And if not, I've also been, I'll be at the, the state dinner in Dublin Castle. But it's the people that will meet him and the messages the ordinary people will give him. And indeed, the political parties in Northern Ireland is the most important part of his visit, I think. Mm, it seems and to be. I am yeah. concerned, obviously, that the the vacuum that is there, <coughs> because the DUP aren't going into government, we had. Thankfully, it wasn't a, a, a huge outbreak of rioting in Derry over the weekend, but it, it's not good to see those petrol bombs being thrown at police vehicles once again and young people on the streets. You know, that's the yeah. last thing we need, you know. Yeah, well, whatever about the problems with the DUP, these were dissident Republicans and violent scenes in Derry, uh, attacks, petrol bombs on the police uh, at a time that the president is coming here to celebrate the agreement that brought peace to this island. Uh, yes, yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's really... Look, it's 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 happened. Uh, the police service in Northern Ireland were on top of the issue. They were there. They were, thankfully, nobody was uh, injured, as I understand it, and, and certainly nobody killed. But it's not it's not good. Yeah. And I mean, that's the vacuum. But it, it, it also seems isn't working. Uh, you know? I mean, I mean, the, the anniversary is undermined uh, by the impasse and the collapse of uh, the institutions. Uh, and it seems uh, that what happened in Derry was uh, to send, the objective was to send a message to the president and it seems as though the president's security has heard that message loud and clear uh, and it's actually impacted on his itinerary that he is going to do far less than was originally planned. Well, I understand that they expected more to happen in Belfast but that, just uh, my own opinion is that, you know, he's not going to Stormont now. I was in Stormont on Friday last and obviously... Uh, all the main parties spoke there except the, the DUP, which again was disappointing. So when a, when a significant minority of a community don't participate in the democratic process for whatever reason they may have, you know that leads to a vacuum, and that leads to tension, and it leads to you know what happened in Derry, and hopefully that won't spread. But we can't allow a veto forever on the majority in Stormont who actually want to work together that they can't because of the rules around the first and the, and the deputy first minister. <clears throat> so, like, nobody is saying to the DUP, nobody is attacking them openly. I'm certainly not doing it now either. Mm. But, like, they, they've been given the space. They have that space. They have, they'll have a meeting. I, I understand all the parties are meeting with, with, with the president tomorrow. Uh, so, look, it's up to them, but mm. they can't just sit on the fence forever. They have well, to make up their well, well, it seems as though they'll sit on the fence until the local elections have passed, if nothing else. Uh, but uh, nobody has any option in terms of forcing their hand as things stand. Something has to change quite dramatically, uh, whether there's uh, some new uh, arrangement put in place when it comes to power sharing or whatever happens. But under uh, the Good Friday Agreement, power sharing means what it means and the DUP have to take their seats given the results of the elections or there is no assembly. That is correct. Uh, and the point is you can't have a minority stopping the majority from working if they want to, given them adequate and appropriate space. Sorry, that, that, but I think the point is, uh, as I read it, the complete opposite. There's nothing you can do about the minority. But, yes. but you see, that is the difficulty. They've been given that space. 
But like the the agreement can be changed. I mean, the designation at the moment is that you know that the person deputy minister when twenty five years ago, uh, the two traditions were were equally were equally important and equally strong. Uh, now the situation is that there's a significant and growing number in the Alliance Party, for instance who are the third force in Northern Ireland politics right now, mm. and they can take the Deputy First Ministership because they don't designate as unionists or nationalists, and that's, that's part of the problem. Um, but like, I don't think anybody wants to force a solution on the DUP either. But I think, as you say, Michael, uh, the wisdom around when I was talking to people in Belfast last week was you know, wait till the elections are over. But the longer you wait, I think the harder it's going to be to, to you know, to get people working again. The problem is the DUP have to accept that they're no longer the majority, the unionists, mm. excuse me, are no longer the major party, the, the first party in Northern Ireland. And that's, 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 that's the reality. Mm. And they haven't accepted that as yet. Can, can we expect some sort of significant announcement in the coming days? Uh, there had been a discussion of a joint statement from the three governments, the American government, the Irish government and the British government, uh, that substantial funding would be made available to Northern Ireland if uh, the institutions were restored. Uh, do you think that that will be announced this week? Well, I've I've heard that that's obviously that that point of view as well, and also the European Union as well. I believe every I believe the major parties, as you say, uh, Britain, Ireland, America, and and Europe itself are ready, willing, and able, uh, you know, to to ensure that there's long term investment and progress in Northern Ireland. And I mean, but at the moment, um, if the unionists don't change their mind, the DUP, then the, you know, nothing will happen. You know that. Mm the way I read it, but it can't go on forever, Michael, that's the point. And I think the longer it goes on, the more people will say, well, look, things are going to have to change, but, you know, people, I mean, Bertie Hearn said it uh, as well there last week, you know, that to try and give the unions a bit more space. If there's anything further that can be done around the protocol, um, and I would agree if you can, you know, the protocol is, is an arrangement whereby trade continues uninterrupted and I think, you know, any, and if there's any further effort needed on that, you know, I think it should be uh, you know, examined to try and solve it. Um, but obviously, you know, it's not it's not looking good right now, Michael. That's okay. Still in all, uh, and on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of excitement and a, a lot of excitement locally uh, that the President of the United States is coming home to his ancestral home. It's expected that tomorrow... He will leave Belfast to visit Carlingford and Carlingford Castle uh, and indeed a walkabout in Dundalk. Uh, There's a a lot of talk about drink as well uh, and as to whether the President will be seen pulling pints or drinking pints or if there'll be zero, zero Guinness available for him. There's there's an interesting letter in uh, the Irish Times this morning from Raid Murphy in Dunboyne in County Meath who says she likes a pint of Guinness herself with a a little drop-in of blackcurrant but she says we all know that President Biden is a, a non-drinker. Let's show the world that Ireland has grown up and can welcome and celebrate the arrival of a guest with a mug of tea, a glass of locally made refreshing lemonade or decent coffee. And she says you'll have a cup of tea, President. Go on, go on, go on. As I say, that's Mairead Murphy and Dunboyne. Uh, any thoughts on uh, the usual photograph with uh, the pint of Guinness? 
Well, I think uh, Teeling's whiskey, um, you know, you, you have whiskey made in Cooley as well. So, um, and it's a big uh, export drive uh, in that as well. I think, look, it's about trade and commerce. I suppose it is tradition that, that they are taking drinks to point to Guinness. I, you know, he doesn't drink, so therefore, you know, he's not, you know, he's not going to be drinking it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't really know. I don't, I think what's important is that the, you know, we've over, I think, over 209,000 people directly employed in Ireland uh, in American companies. I think there's about 170,000 other people indirectly employed in American investment in Ireland. So, you know, I think it's important by him coming here that we celebrate and acknowledge the importance of the investment in Ireland, the jobs it creates. And also, in America, I understand mm. there's about 650 Irish companies over there employing over 100,000 Americans. So. Yeah. It's, it's a two-way street. But, and a great um, opportunity to showcase the county, isn't it? Uh, and it is, uh, for Americans and others to become aware of County Louth, we were listening to the White House press secretary uh, get her head around pronouncing it and ended up uh, with a very good pronunciation. I thought it said a, a lot in terms of how County Louth has been put on the map. Very much so. And I think Carlingford is a very beautiful place and King John's Castle there goes back, I think, to the 12th century. There's beautiful mountains, there's sea views. Uh, there's oysters, there's tourism, there's lots of things to do, you know, where he is visiting. That's, you know, obviously he's not coming to Drogheda, which I have much prefer if he did, living down here to see our lovely places here. But look, it's great. It's great for the county. It's good for cross-border tourism as well. Mm. You know, and obviously the eyes will turn to, you know, you know the proposed narrow water bridge and how how the whole county... Or the, or the Joe Biden bridge, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I don't mind. I have no problem. <laughs> okay. I've run out of time, Fergus. I'll have to leave it there. But okay, thank Michael, you, for, thank you very okay. much indeed uh, for joining us uh, to mark uh, the arrival of uh, the President this evening. Uh, that's uh, Fergus O'Dowd of Finnegale TD in Louth and East Meath, who is the chair of the Oireachtas Committee for the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. The main purpose of uh, President Biden's visit uh, to Ireland is uh, to celebrate uh, the anniversary of uh, the Good Friday Agreement, an agreement that brought peace to this island 25 years ago in 1998. Go back 35 years ago, though, to 1988, when Dermot O'Hearn was a Fianna Fáil TD for Louth, based in El Paso, a.k.a. Dundalk, in the heart of bandit country, a.k.a. County Louth. And uh, there were talks that were very secret, but got underway between the then Irish government and Sinn Féin. Uh, Dermot O'Hearn is on the line. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, to look back on how peace was uh, delivered uh, on this island. Uh, And uh, you had a a somewhat significant role uh, in terms of those talks that were Highly secret at the time. Well, I was elected in 1987, and um, I was practicing as a young solicitor in Dundalk. And at the time, uh, Dundalk was termed a for sale town, um, uh, somewhat uh, <laughs> incorrectly, I think. But at the same time, that was the perception across the nation. Uh, there were so many for sale signs on the main streets of Dundalk. We were subject to very grave difficulties flowing from the troubles. And um, shortly after I was elected, I was approached by um, Charlie Ha. He was then Taoiseach. Um, he said to me that he had been asked um, by 
Cardinal Tommaso Fee um, uh, through Father Alec Reed uh, to meet Sinn Féin um, secretly, uh, basically to mirror talks that were taking place between Sinn Féin, Gerry Adams and uh, SDLP's John Hume. Mm-hmm. And basically the, the whole idea was to replicate the talks and to mirror the talks so that um, um, Sinn Féin were having discussions with the voice of nationalism at the time, the SDLP in the north and then with Fianna Fáil in the south. Okay, uh, and yourself and Martin Mansra travelled to, to meet with Gerry Adams and... Uh, and, and Richie Healy from, from uh, County Meath. He's since passed away. Okay. Uh, the three of us were nominated by Hahi at the time. Uh, Hahi um, brought me into his office and told me all this and... Uh, I was very uneasy about it because at the time uh, there was, there was, uh, the IRA were in full belt um, and the whole idea of meeting uh, these people was an anathema to me as a constitutional politician. Um, I came home and I stu- discussed it with my wife, I discussed it with my brother and in the end I decided, I, I told Hahi that I would think about it over the weekend. I did go back to him the following week and said that I would do it. He did say to me that it had to be completely secret. Um, I did say to him uh, when I said to him that I was going to do it, I said, but how will it be secret if it ever got out that Martin Mansura was part of it? They would know then that he was his special advisor at that time. And he said that he would get over that. Richie Healy from Mead was a member of our national executive at the time, so it was basically someone from the parliamentary party, i.e. me and uh, Richie Healy from the national executive, and then Martin Mansour as a special advisor. And we met with um, Jerry Adams, Mitchell McLaughlin and Pat Doherty in the Redemptorist. Um, the meeting was facilitated by uh, Father Alec Reid. This was in 1988. I remember at the time... Mm. I was a bit nervous going to the meeting and I, I spotted a special branch car sitting outside uh, the Redemptorist. Um, I said to myself, this meet, the contents of this meeting or the fact that this meeting was taking place will we'll get out. But it didn't until uh, just shortly after the Good Friday Agreement, 10 years later. Mm. And, and there were subsequent meetings, uh, I think. Uh, I have notes of subsequent meetings that we had, um, which... which um, ultimately stopped uh, and basically I think the communication was directly with subsequently with when uh, Albert Reynolds took over between Martin Mansra and uh, Sinn Féin. Interesting the way you said you spotted the special branch car. Uh, does that mean that there were no security arrangements put in place in advance that you were specifically aware of? No, no there weren't. I mean, the, how he wouldn't have said it to anyone but uh, Maybe the special branch were t- tailing various people, I don't know, but definitely it was a special branch sitting outside the, the front gates of, of the uh, Redemptorist um, monastery there in, in, in Dundalk. Right, uh, and all these years later, 35 <coughs> years later, I think it's possibly difficult for some people to understand the significance of those talks or how you may have felt about it at the time as a representative of the government who was basically told, you're on your own and good luck, but come back with something if you can, um, that 
you were going in to meet the IRA. I take it there was little doubt in your mind uh, that when you met with Jerry Adams and Pat Doherty that you were talking to the leadership of the IRA. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, at the time, he told me, uh, he said that if these, he said for, in very colourful language, he said, I, I don't know if we can trust these so-and-so, so-and-sos. Um, but he did say to me that if it got out, um, he said, you're on your own. I will deny everything. And I have to say, subsequently, in the doll on a new number of occasions, when he was asked in, in subsequent years, uh, did he or anyone on his behalf meet with uh, Sinn Féin, stroke the IRA, that's the way it was termed, and he denied it. Um, but that was really necessary. Those type of meetings were necessary if there was any possibility that uh, we were going to convince people to go down a constitutional route, f- fully constitutional route. If you remember, um, uh, it was said at the time that uh, Sinn Féin would fight um, uh, with the ballot box in one hand and the armalite in the other. And obviously, people like ourselves, who were totally constitutional politicians, who believed in discussion across a, a conference table rather than the bomb and the bullet, that um, we had to convince people that that was the way. And if there was any possibility that those people uh, thought that this was the way to go, that we had to obviously investigate that and try and convince them of that. And the discussions were more or less about the historical um, aspect of republicanism and nationalism in Ireland and, you know, from Wolf Tone onwards. Um, and, and those discussions, you know, mm-hmm. obviously were part of the a long process that that, uh, that took place subsequently. And can you recall how you felt in 1988 and the 10 years between those talks and the Good Friday Agreement? Would you say that you felt optimistic at all in 1988 or did you feel frustrated at all in the intervening 10 years? Well, I mean, obviously people that we were meeting were, were denying that they were members of the IRA. They were, um, and yet, you know, we understood that, you know, they were getting messages back to the IRA. And at the same time, I do recall one of the meetings um, on the Saturday before the Monday meeting that was due. Um, a number of British soldiers were blown up in a bus in Ballygawley. Um, and uh, myself and Richie Healy communicated with each other over the weekend and we both said that we we didn't really feel that we could continue meeting with these people. Um, We didn't tell Martin Mansfield, we didn't tell um, Charlie Hawhey about our our reluctance to meet, but in the end we decided that we would have to meet, um, given the fact that the meeting was organised, but also that we would make a, a, a protest at the start of the meeting, which we did, but the meeting continued. Um, in fairness, um, Jerry Adams and the others would have said um, the very fact that they were meeting with us clearly showed that there was an attempt by them to stop the, the type of atrocities that took place in Ballygawley. And uh, I suppose this was always the way, even after the Oma bombing in 1998, um, you know, the, the natural human um, reaction to something like that would be you can't continue meeting with people who espouse violence or who mm-hmm. perpetrate violence. And yet, you know, those talks continued after that. Um, and thankfully, um, we now have the relative peace on the island, okay. um, mainly as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, it has mm-hmm. to be said. Yeah. 
Well, uh, in uh, 1998, uh, when the agreement uh, was signed on the 10th of April, you sat at Cabinet, uh, you were Government Minister, you were part of the decision-making process uh, in reaching that uh, agreement uh, and I'm sure uh, you look back on it uh, sometimes, as many will, uh, and wonder uh, how did we pull it off because it, it really was a case of achieving the impossible, wasn't it? Well, it was in that there were uh, quite a number of difficulties, one of which was convincing the pop public in the Republic uh, to delete Articles 2 and 3 of our Constitution. And uh, that wasn't an easy job, particularly in a party like my party, who, you know, some of whom would have, you know, being living away from the border, would have had a much greener view about um, uh, issues to do with our constitutional claim to Northern Ireland. Um and in fairness, uh, I don't think, uh, while Bertie Hearn has given great credit for his involvement in the actual negotiations of on the Good Friday Agreement, I don't think he's often given enough credit or acknowledgement for the way in which he masterfully um, got Fianna Fáil at that time to, uh, and particularly the parliamentary party at that time, to, to um, accept that we needed to delete Articles 2 and 3 of our Constitution in the referendum. What he did was, rather than have a full parliamentary party meeting, he decided to invite groups of TDs um, to his house, actually. And um, over dinner, uh, about 10 TDs, he, he talked to them about the necessity to to um, to, to change our constitution. And um, the fact that our party didn't uh, show any real objection to and, and and accepted the need to change was one of the major uh, components of 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 uh, I think the successful um, attitude that the general public had in the republic to the changes in our constitution. It's often forgotten in all of this that you know the DUP have pulled down the institutions or Sinn Fein have pulled down the institutions over the last number of years set up under the Good Friday Agreement, but particularly in recent times, you know, it's said that the DUP have pulled down the institutions and it's terrible that there are no institutions working in Northern Ireland, but equally so, the six cross-border bodies which were set up under the Good Friday Agreement as a quid pro quo for the deletions of Articles 2 and 3, they haven't been working to their full potential. And I think we in the Republic are suffering because of that. So mm. it is necessary and, and important that uh, the institutions in the North um, are put back in place. But equally so, there should be a renewed vigour shown for our six cross-border bodies. Mm. And particularly by our government, there should be more talk about the, you know, the continuing... Uh, necessity to have the six cross-border bodies working properly. Okay, can I just conclude by asking you what your sense of it is? Uh, because uh, it's all a, a little bit fragile uh, at the moment uh, and impossible to know how fragile it, it, it might be. Uh, some violence on the streets of Derry to mark the arrival of uh, the president, no doubt, and to send a message uh, to one and all about how fragile the peace process is. It's still a very new uh, process uh, and uh, what will happen uh, as we go forward in, in time. Are you optimistic that peace will prevail and that the direction that we decided to take 25 years ago is the one that will continue on? 
I'm very optimistic that peace will continue and will prevail. Um, I'm not so optimistic about the institutions um, being put up back up and running in in the north. Um, I don't think anything will happen this side of the local elections in May. I think the DUP will play a long game in that respect. Uh, I suppose the issue then is will they go into um, uh, government in effect with Sinn Féin as uh, in the driving seat? In effect, um, they, of course, they'll say they're joint ministers, joint first ministers, but the reality is Sinn Féin are in the driving seat in, in that respect. And I, I find it difficult to visualise um, the DUP playing second fiddle in that respect. Uh, I hope, uh, I know Jeffrey Donaldson, I've known him for a long time, he is a practical politician, even though he left the UUP and joined the DUP in the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement. I do believe that he is a more reasonable um, politician and understands. And I hope that the British government will put additional pressure on them uh, to go in. Um, But to answer your question, I think I am optimistic that peace will continue to prevail. Of course, there will always be people, the entrails of the paramilitaries trying to pull it down. But um, I would be optimistic in that respect that we will not go. There's a new generation up in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's a much more diverse population, and I believe that will hold sway in that respect. Um, but unfortunately, the Good Friday Agreement, it was a start. It was only a start. An awful lot of issues were left uh, undone uh, from the Good Friday Agreement. Um, the St. Andrews Agreement, of which I was one of the major negotiators in, um, changed a number of aspects and brought in uh, and facilitated the the policing, uh, new policing regime. So it was really only after 2007 that um, the the full implications of the Good Friday Agreement were put in place in practical terms, which meant that Sinn Féin and the DUP went into government for the first time in 2007. But unfortunately, it has been stop-start since then. And I suspect it will be, to a certain extent, stop-start um, uh, uh, even after this. Um, but I don't think we're going, going back to the scenario that confronted us in the late 80s, in the 70s, 80s and early 90s. Thank you very much. It really is a pleasure to speak to you again, you. and particularly this week, uh, given uh, the anniversary of uh, such a, an important agreement. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, on Not the at all. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That's a former government minister in Fianna Fáil TD for Louth, Dermot Ahern. Michael Reed on LMFM. The North-South Interconnector is uh, to proceed as planned with overground pylons. Uh, That's uh, the decision that has been taken by the government following an independent review into the project. Airgrid has said uh, that uh, it is going to start construction now and expects it to be completed in the next couple of years. It's odd, actually, since uh, this was announced. Airgrid have not wanted to speak publicly on this radio station about the project or their plans for constructing it. Let's uh, go to Porik uh, once again, Porik Riley, who is uh, the spokesperson for the pressure campaign against this project, the Northeast Pile and Pressure Campaign. And a very good morning to you, Porik, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you're asking for the government party TDs in the three counties affected to come together uh, and to lobby the government to change its decision on this. Good morning, Michael. Yes, um, 
I think following on from the um, interview given by Minister uh, Heather Humphreys uh, recently um, in one of the national papers where she stated uh, that um, undergrounding was the only way forward and that there is no way that the overhead line would ever succeed. I think um, all other uh, government TDs in the in the three counties, uh, you know, should follow her stance that she has taken, which we welcome. And um, you know, form form a group collectively. There is a coalition government. It makes sense for the TDs in the three counties to have uh, a common position uh, on this in relation to pushing back on. It's really specifically uh, Minister Eamon Ryan who is doing a solo run here and who is calling the shots. And um, there seems to be a lot of variation in, in the statements made in the last couple of weeks, including on your program from the likes of Thomas Byrne, who is, is stating things, things very differently to Heather Humphrey. So they should all come together and have a united stance in, in looking for undergrounding uh, of the project. OK. Uh, are there any other TDs uh, that support Heather Humphrey's point of view. Uh, we've uh, a couple of them <laughs> in uh, the county government party TDs. Uh, we've uh, Thomas Burns, you say, who's accepted the government's uh, decision. Uh, we don't know, obviously, what Helen McEntee's position is uh, because she's on maternity leave. And uh, we don't know what Damien English's position is because he hasn't made it public. Uh, correct, Michael. So, I mean, we we don't know either in relation to, to the other TDs. They've all stayed very, very silent on this. In the past and when they're in opposition, it was a very different uh, story. So, you know, we're, we're, we're calling on them as our representatives uh, to state their position. Are they supporting the latest government press release? Are they supporting Minister Humphreys? Uh, where do they actually stand? Mm. Uh, there are no green um, uh, elected representatives in, in those three counties. So it's really back to Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil. Um, they've all been at our meetings over the years. They've all stated, you know, that they, what they would do when in government. They're in government now. They should speak with one voice and, and, and push back on this project and push back and agree it. And it's absolutely important because if we think of historically the other projects in the other parts of, of the country with Grid West, which has now been uh, undergrounded thanks to inputs from, from Enda Kenny uh, and other TDs at the time. We had Grid... Uh, uh, we, we had the um, the main project going down through the spine of the country uh, that has now disappeared because of political pressure. We have, importantly, from from our standpoint, the Kildare Mead line, uh, which has happened in in in, in 2021, where Airgrid have decided to go underground with that. Uh, and all we're asking for is for the same criteria that they've used for the Kildare Mead line to be applied to North South Interconnector. Yeah, well, you, um, you've asked for that and you've been told, no, it isn't going to happen. Uh, and you could argue the rest of uh, the day as to whether it's viable or not. Uh, but that seems to be the position of the government uh, who now has instructed Airgrid to proceed. Uh, you may be interested from the political perspective uh, of all of this uh, about Damien English uh, because, uh, as you know, Damien English was uh, disgraced and had to uh, resign his uh, role as a Minister of State 
uh, and he's gone to ground since then, so it's uh, impossible to speak uh, to Damien English. Uh, but we did make some inquiries through the Fine Gael press office that then went to his constituency office, and we had three questions which were uh, we wanted to invite Damien to discuss the North-South interconnector on our programme if he wished to do that. Uh, we wanted to request a statement on the interconnector from him if the interview was not possible, and we wanted to ask if he'd be available for interviews at some time in the future if he wasn't going to talk to us about this project uh, because uh, he hasn't spoken since uh, he resigned about anything publicly it it would seem but anyway we got a a response uh, from his constituency office saying that on behalf of Damien English TD I wish to acknowledge your email because all of this was in writing your correspondence will be brought to Damien's attention as soon as possible Uh, we haven't heard back since and uh, that goes back to the 24th of March Yes, Michael. Well, I think you know, in in uh, in um, Damien English's situation, uh, you know, a, a lot has happened in the last couple of months. Um, but that doesn't change uh, the fact that he is representing uh, many, many landowners who are being affected by this project. And indeed, uh, you know, likewise, M- Minister Smith and Neve Smith in in, in the Cavan Monaghan area. Um, so. You know, they can't stay silent on this forever. You know, this project has been going on a long time. There's still a long way to go on it. There's a lot of uh, difficult areas still to happen. And and they cannot stay silent on this. So if they think that this has, has gone quiet for the last couple of years and it's going to go away and it's just going to happen, uh, they're backing up the wrong tree. And they need to come out and give a solid position as, where they, as to where they stand. And you mentioned um, the landowners and the farmers. What about the Irish Farmers Association? We asked uh, me, the IFA, to discuss this with us on the programme. We expected the IFA and me to talk to us, uh, but then things turned around and we received a statement from them at the end of March saying that the IFA is not formally involved in these negotiations so they won't be commenting on it. Yes, and and that's a very important point, Michael. Traditionally, there has been an ESB IFA code of practice for managing um, many of the electricity lines, but not for the 400 kV line, not for the extra high voltage line, for, for the smaller ones. And also bear in mind that all of the farmers um, um, who are affected by this uh, project have signed up to NEPP uh, many, many years ago to represent them in any negotiations with Airgrid or with ESP. So the IFA does not have a role on this project. It's very much up to ourselves um, and we represent the farmers. Okay, so you're and and that and that, by the way, Michael is not something that Airgrid or ESB have ever stated. They have always said, "Oh, we 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 will be working with the IFA," but actually, that actually is a misleading statement. The IFA do not have a role on this. It is really very much between us and the farmers and Airgrid. Okay, there's a report that's uh, being published today by Engineers Ireland, which says if we don't get on with this, uh, there is going to be a significant increase in what we pay for electricity. That is absolutely not the case. Um, I mean, very recently we have it has come to light to us that this project has been delisted by the EU as no longer being a PCI, which is a project of common interest. So it had the highest priority level because of the assumed need, particularly for Northern Ireland, uh, and a shortage of electricity. All that has passed has passed by. There is no critical need for 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 this line for Northern Ireland. 
Uh, you had Professor John Fitzgerald on a couple of years ago saying the lights would go out in Northern Ireland and be a risk to life and limb. All, all of this, all of these dramatic statements have not come to pass. Uh, there is a need for the line for commercial reasons to add in possibly more data data centres. Uh, but that is a, a, a different debate for another day as to whether we need any more data centres. We already have far too many. Um, in 2020 and 21, the consumption in da- by data centres is higher than the whole of rural mm. Ireland put together. And we don't think it's right that farmers and local communities uh, sh- should have this project foisted on them. Okay, but just the, co- commercial needs. The, the cost of the construction uh, is rising rapidly. Uh, yes. you, you make the point in your own statement uh, that you've uh, published uh, this morning that the cost uh, was to be 368 to 442 million, uh, which is far higher than the original quote of 187 million. Uh, yes, Michael, and, and, and puts it into the same range as, as the purported cost of undergrounding. But Engineers Ireland, Ireland, Engineers Ireland just, just, just if I could make the point to you, Patrick, Engineers Ireland are saying uh, it went from 331 million uh, between 21 and 22, uh, and that it's going to go to 835 million for 22 to 23. Yeah. Yeah, so, which so, is not so, surprising when you think of but the if it is that more expensive, you're, you're going to have to Whereas, pay more for electricity, aren't you? Well, well that, but that's that's for an overhead line. Uh, we would argue now that for an underground line, it will actually be cheaper, and, and the whole cost thing is no longer a, an issue with this project, Michael. Mm. Because if you look at Airgrid and their statements on the Kildare Mead line, and you had them on your ver- on your own program, and you asked them directly, mm. um, the head of, of infrastructure. You know, is undergrounding now uh, as as cheap as as overhead lines? And he stated that when you do the overall cost benefit analysis, which which is what we've been all saying, is that the undergrounding is in the same range. Okay. So whether you go overhead or underground, it's going to be the same cost. And this is an argument that's been put against us for the last fifteen years, which mm. no longer holds any water. All right. Well, it has planning permission. Are you calling into question the planning permission that was given to this project by Armbor Planola because of uh, how it is no longer a project of common interest? Uh, under uh, that EU status? Well, well, we're going to look into it, Michael. I guess we are calling into question the whole foundation of the planning permission. It, it, it was submitted as a project of common interest. It was given priority status uh, by Onboard Planala on that basis. Onboard Planala is actually appointed as the competent authority for this project for looking at it uh, as a PCI. All that has now changed. There hasn't been a word from Airgrid. I, I, I presume they have not informed the government. Um, there are a whole lot of permit granting procedures around that approval. Uh, there's funding also from the EU. We need to check now, are those procedures uh, need to be changed and how does it affect the conditions for planning? Uh, so there's something we have to look into and definitely okay. we're, we're calling for the government to look into this as well because it has changed the status of this project from an EU perspective. Okay, Parik, I have to leave it there because I'm out of time, but thank you for your time and thank you for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That is Parik Riley, spokesperson with uh, the NEPP, that's the North East Pile and Pressure Campaign Group. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The Minister for Education, Norma Foley, will address members of uh, the Association 
Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland this afternoon. Uh, before she does, uh, she'll hear from uh, the President of ASTI. Uh, and we can speak now to the Deputy General Secretary of ASTI, Dermot de Per. Good morning to you once again, Dermot, and uh, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We'll talk in a, a moment about what you hope to hear from the Minister. What do you expect your President, though, to say to Norma Foley? Well, I think the themes of the convention, and I think that's what the the president will pick up on, uh, a lot of it will be to do with uh, proposed changes to the leaving certificate and the the senior cycle and and our views on that, because uh, we want to make sure that when any changes maintain existing high standards and fairness, um, we have a system that is regarded as as very, very fair, at least at least in the examination stage. There are inequalities prior to that which may need to be addressed, but they're often societal. And we have a great trust in the state exam system. People believe, you know, that if they get a particular mark um, and somebody else gets another, that it's fairly done. Um, and, and that's something that we're, we're um, adamant about pre- preserving. While uh, so, so there are some motions on some of the proposals that the minister made uh, to do with relocating the exams to different types of times of year and things like that. But also there is a motion to establish a committee to develop our own proposals for changes um, in the leaving, leaving cert cycle uh, because we're not simply an organisation that says no to things. We want to point out the improvements that we think should be made. So she, I think she will put a big emphasis on that. Obviously, the whole issue of teacher recruitment is a very, very big one at the moment. We are in a crisis in terms of getting teachers. We, we uh, published a survey last week, uh, a survey of our principal teachers and of our teachers, and 81% of schools um, have vacancies that they can't fill. The principals are at their wit's end trying to get people uh, into schools because there is a massive crisis in recruiting teachers, and that has to be addressed. Yeah. And and we ask people why we address that, and I suppose the very obvious one is pay. Um, and I think it's particularly in the context of teachers being offered better jobs, either in in industry or uh, teaching abroad, maybe in the Middle East and getting paid more money, and the absolutely, the crisis in accommodation. Okay, Um, I think I I, I saw seven motions uh, on assessing exams, uh, the Leaving Cert exam uh, in particular uh, seems uh, to be one of the issues that will dominate your conference. Uh, And there's obviously a lot of upset about that and about uh, the conditions of work and remuneration and so on. What are you hoping to hear from the Minister? Because the Minister by all accounts will tell you that if your pay is to increase it has to be in line with all public servants. Well there are ways of addressing that firstly one of the things that we're suggesting is that maybe one of the things that that is they have an extraordinarily long uh, salary scale it's 27 points on the scale before you get to the top of it and that unusual in the public service and that could be concertina a little and that would help but I think then I think we may have to special circumstances require special um, responses. So maybe they do have to break out a bit from what's the national agreement. But also I suppose another issue, and it's an issue to do with uh, recruitment, that's a big one that's come up an awful lot, is that we moved a few years ago to a two-year postgraduate qualification being necessary for teaching. And degree courses have nearly all gone to four years now. So teachers are spending six years before they qualify. And then at the end of that time, it, it takes them at least two, if not three or four years, before they will get a permanent job. So they're saying at the end of four years, they're saying, I, I am not going to do an two years at, at considerable expense with the prospect of maybe getting you know permanency two or three or four years later and in the meantime you know if I want to so you now have 
teachers entering the profession and getting permanency at the time that they want to be settling down mm. and you know and purchasing a property or, or and um, and that's just not possible so we want the PME length examined that, and there are two possible solutions there. One is that they reduce it back to the one year that it was before. The second year the option is, which they do in other countries like Scotland, for example, that the second year is primarily a teaching experience year and you get paid for that. Um, nurses get paid, not enough for their for their years of, you know, of doing practice mm-hmm. uh, while they're qualifying. But I think it, it might attract more people and say, well, if, I, if after my first year I could actually get uh, you know, an income, that would certainly make it slightly more attractive to become a teacher. Okay, can I ask you about class sizes? Uh, because that will also be debated uh, at your well, conference. Well, uh, and uh, what impact uh, Ukrainian refugees are, are having on class sizes? There's some 13... 30- well, the first thing... Yeah, we, we look. Our class sizes are the highest in Europe. Mm. But but um, but first of all, I, the first thing I have to say about Ukrainian and, and the other refugees, by the way, and I'd be, mm. you know, I'd emphasise that refugees mm. are very welcome. Uh, these are people who sure. have come from traumatised areas. Th- obviously, but there's thirteen thousand extra, extra but, children in classrooms. But but, but, yeah. but, but mm. yes, it is causing problems, and they have to be addressed. I have to say. To be fair to the department and government, they responded very quickly. But uh, now they, they're going to have to put in far more resources. And of course, one of the problems is they need more teachers and to get those, and they need more psychological supports, which are hard to get too, because mm-hmm. a lot of these uh, children come with, uh, you know, trauma in their background, difficulties of, of, course, of yeah. settling mm-hmm. into language. Yeah, yeah. language. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a huge raft of supports that have to be ramped up, and and that's going to cost money, but it's, it's money that has to be spent. Okay. And, and, yeah. I, I'm sorry, Jeremy, I've just uh, actually run over time uh, on okay. earlier okay. issues, so I have to uh, cut our conversation short. But thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll hear much more from your conference over the coming days. Uh, and thank you, as I say, for joining us uh, today. That's Jeremy uh, Deper, Deputy General Secretary of ASTI, the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to Thursday's match uh, between Bay FC Dundalk and Sporting BJD of uh, Bally James Duff. How it was abandoned and has led uh, to a Garda investigation getting underway. LMFM reporter Mark O'Driscoll is in studio with us. Mark, tell us what happened. Good morning, Michael. Yes, well, footage of this shocking incident emerging on social media on Holy Thursday night into Good Friday morning. I'm not sure if you if you saw the video, but this incident unfolded on Thursday night's Division 1 match between Bay FC, a team from Dundalk, and Sporting BJD of Bally James Duff in County Cavan. It was a game in the North East Football League. I believe from chatting to a few referees, the referee on the night decided to abandon the match as one team failed to have the regulation number of players on the field. And then a player from Sporting Bally James Duff must have took issue with this decision. And the footage allegedly shows a player running at the referee, lunging and kicking him in the the midriff in midair. It's a Kung Fu style kick, if you like. Mm, Very violent. Uh, And uh, I presume uh, it was how severe the attack was on the referee that has led to the guards getting involved. Absolutely. From speaking to a couple of referees in the league, they said that the referee in question was left badly shaken. Um, He went down as his procedure. He reported it to the league and he also went down to the Garda barracks then in Dundalk to make an official complaint as well, put in a 
put in a, a statement. The Guards have confirmed that they've launched an investigation into the matter, just confirming with Dundalk Gardaí this morning. No arrests have yet been made, but they say that investigations are ongoing. Now, of course, the League has come out itself then to, to say that they're launching their own separate investigation. Following, once they received the match report from the referee, they said that they will then launch their own investigation. And Sporting Bally James Duff were quick to come out as well on um, Good Friday morning to say that they were extremely disappointed at the event and that they will be treating the incident very seriously and will be taking action on the matter. Uh, as seems appropriate. Mark, thank you for that. That's LMFM reporter Mark O'Driscoll. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Gardaí are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kate Patterson of the Community Policing Unit in Dundalk joins us for the report this week and thank you for doing so. We're going to begin with an aggravated burglary that occurred in Dundalk over the weekend. Good morning, Michael. That's correct. So we start off this morning um, with an aggravated aggravated burglary, as you say, which took place this in the early hours of Sunday morning. Um, investigators in Dundalk Garda Station are appealing for witnesses to it was a very serious and frightening burglary and assault at Linen Hall Street in Dundalk in the early hours of Sunday morning. Um, at 2.50am, Garda received reports of a female in distress in the vicinity and on arrival at the scene, they met a young woman dressed in her pyjamas. The woman informed Garda that three or four males, one of whom was armed with a knuckle duster, forced their way into the house in which she was living and on entering the property, made their way up the stairs and into the bedroom of another female. An altercation took place in the bedroom before the suspects, who are believed to have spoken with local accents, stole a mobile phone um, and fled the scene. So ourselves, the Guardian Dundalk, was very eager to speak to anyone who may have been in this area of Dundalk in the early hours of Sunday morning. Nightclubs were closing the town was busy on a Saturday night with revellers who had been making their way home from their night out um, and were possibly waiting for taxis. Linen Hall Street is located just off Cambrassel Street, which of course is a very busy area. So if you were in the area at the time, if you saw anything untoward or if you have any information that you feel might help our investigation, please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 Okay, I thought knuckle dusters had been relegated to old black and white movies, but that's frightening. Uh, We stay in Dundalk for the next report of criminal damage. Yeah, so uh, Michael, this incident took place on Friday the 31st of March and we're trying to identify a young man who was responsible for causing a significant amount of damage to the McDonald's fast food restaurant in Stapleton Place. As I say, it took place on the 31st of March, just after 10pm. Um, and Just to jog people's memories, this was the night that Dundalk played Shamrock Rovers at Oriel Park um, and were beaten, unfortunately, 4-0. So after the game, um, a number of youths made their way to McDonald's where one particular male lit a floor and let it off in the main lobby of the building. Now, the flooring of the lobby was extensively damaged, but a number of persons were on the premises at the time and were left extremely frightened when the flare was lit and the restaurant became engulfed in red smoke. The male we believe is responsible is being described as five foot eight in height. He's white and he would be of stocky build. He was aged between the ages of 16 and 20 and at the time he was wearing a blue jacket. Now he was accompanied by a second male who we think is approximately five foot five in height, 
also of stocky build and wearing a black tracksuit. So anyone who thinks they might be able to assist the investigation is urged to contact ourselves in Dundalk on 042-938-400 or indeed any Garda station in your locality. Next to a burglary at the Knightsbrook Hotel in Trim over the weekend. Yeah, just over the weekend. So Garda in the detective unit in Trim, they're investigating a burglary which took place at the Knightsbrook Hotel sometime between 10 o'clock on Sunday evening and 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. An alarm was activated at the golf club shop at approximately 10 o'clock on Saturday evening and when staff went to open up on Sunday morning, they came across a broken window to the rear of the building. It appeared that whoever was responsible for the burglary gained access via this broken window before making their way to internal offices, changing rooms and the golf club bar where they caused extensive damage. Now, if you were in the vicinity at the time and you came across anybody acting in a suspicious manner or indeed anyone who may have been bleeding, having been possibly cut with glass, then please get in touch with the detectives in Trim. The number at Trim is 046-948-1540. Or as always, please, if you have any information, you can contact the Garda Confidential number. It's 1800-666-111. Next to a robbery that took place not just the weekend gone by, but the weekend before that. Yes, Michael. So Guardian Drogheda and Dunlear are investigating a robbery incident which took place at 7 o'clock in the evening of Sunday the 2nd of April. So as you say, not last weekend, just past the previous weekend. So they would like to speak to anybody who may have been in the deals area between the hours of 6pm and 8pm that Sunday evening. It still would have been bright as the clocks went back the previous weekend. So it would have been a nice bright Sunday evening. Um, a male was walking his three dogs in this area, in the Dales area, just after 7pm when a group of men approached him and asked him if one of his dogs was for sale. Uh, the walker informed the group that the dog was a family pet and under no certain circumstances was for sale. So one of the group then proceeded to tell the male that the dog was going to be coming home with him and attempted to grab the dog and take it from its owner. Um, a scuffle ensued in which the dog owner was pushed to the ground um, whilst one of the men produced a Stanley knife. The group fled the scene and thankfully um, without the dog and um, I suppose it's great to know that the, the, the dog owner didn't require any medical att- attention despite suffering several grazes during the incident. So anyone who may have been walking in the area and came across this group of men acting suspiciously or indeed anybody who believes they can assist the investigation please, please contact uh, Dunlear Garda Station, the number there being 041-686-2380. Dreadful story. The clock is just about to get uh, the better of us. Uh, Before we conclude, uh, perhaps you could tell us what restrictions will be in place that we know of uh, at this stage uh, for the presidential visit. Yeah, so as you said, Michael, the President of the United States, Mr Biden, arrives in Ireland today before his planned trip to the Cooley Peninsula and Dundalk Town Centre tomorrow. It's expected a number of road closures and traffic restrictions will be in place um, ahead of and during the President's visits, and confirmation of these closures and restricted are expected to be formally announced later on this morning. So in general, Angarda Shukana will try to keep any traffic restrictions to the minimum and it is intended that any impact on the public will be localised and minimal. The public can, however, expect localised road closures due to um, facilitating security escorts in certain locations over the President's visits. Uh, further details will be made available on our own live Garda Facebook page. 
the Garda Shikona Facebook page and the Garda website, um, hopefully from lunchtime on. I suppose in advance of this visit, we would like to thank all members of the public for their patience and understanding during what we hope will be these short disruptions. Garda Kate Patterson of uh, the Community Policing Unit at Dundalk Garda Station. Thank you. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.